up, up, and away. Here we go. You hear the music. You know what's going on. It's time for Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Huge show ready to go tonight. Iron. every couple of days, every couple of hours even, it seems like we're getting new news as all these sports are attempting to come back. And it's it's really an exciting time for us who haven't had much to watch over the past couple of months. Not much to watch, but also trying to figure out how these sports are going to come back. I mean, definitely, we were talking about it two months ago. There was a lot of ifs, could, and looks like now, look, the NHL is coming back. The yeah. NBA is coming back. Major League Baseball, we don't know. But clearly, they're going to play NFL football and those things. So now we're just finalizing the plans. And, and it's sort of a, a you know this world where we don't know. You know it's going to be different, but it'll be unique to see a playoff format like they have in the NHL. And the playoff. Everybody says, "Boy, we I don't like the regular season. I like the playoffs." Well, you're going to get the playoffs in the NHL and the NBA. That's what you're going to get. Absolutely, you are. It's kind of strange to me that the NHL was the first one to really come out with a plan here. When is Gary Bettman ever ahead of the curve? So I'm I'm excited. I, I thought that hockey was going to be the one to kind of drop the ball here, whereas it seems like that might be what we're getting with baseball. Well, I'll we'll tell talk you what, about them with more. baseball and not getting their act together, and with the NBA going saying we're going to start July, um, July 31st, August 1st, that time. This is a change. The NHL might have a two-week window if yeah. they get going fast, where they can really control the narrative and have be. I mean, for you imagine for the NHL for two weeks to have everybody watching NHL games. Yeah, and, and as you know, the playoff intensity hockey is a different product. So I would love to see the average casual sports fan get to take in some of this and be like, "Man, this is really some some good sports to watch." Um, since hockey is coming back, we've got our good friend Randy Moeller. He's your Florida Panthers television analyst. He's going to join us in just about fifteen minutes. Uh, discuss. How the Panthers' outlook is against the New York Islanders. Also talk about just what's going on because I have so many questions as they start to put this together. Randy's going to try to answer that as well. And then coming up at 7.35, Ira, you've been talking about this book for weeks. Neil Bascom's going to join us. He's the author of Faster. Tell us about that. Well, I'm telling you, in like two years probably, you're going to see Faster, the movie, and you're going to be like, wow, you heard this on Iron Sports because <laughs> this is great. I mean, you have – it's in the 20s and 30s, race car drivers. And I said when people were driving like 10, 20 miles – an hour they're driving 150 so it seems like today like 500 miles an hour and you have uh, a, a Harris a, a model Lucy Shell who was also the best before Danica Patrick a much better race car driver than her and you have Renee Dreyfus who is a Jewish driver in France and you have Hitler in the war machine creating all these cars and there's like this battle and you think this is just fictional it's a true story and it happened in the 20s and 30s and it's a great story and Neil is a, I just can't wait to have him on I love this book I've sent this book out to like a dozen of my friends uh, and they all love the book and, and it's they Neil said he's, it's working to be a movie. So I think you're going to see uh, Ford versus Ferrari. You'll see faster in two years. And you'll get that uh, 735 right here on Ira on Sports. Okay, so let's get into it. I'll, I'll talking about these comebacks, Ira. Baseball, it seems like every day we hear more discouraging news coming out of both the owners and the players' sides. Well, you know it's discouraging when they the offer is given and within like a minute you have tweets coming back like <laughs> LOL. That's what Andrew McCutcheon said. That today the, the major league, when we got off the air last week, I think the owners were hinting at they were going to pay. The owners are saying we're only going to pay you one-third of your salary. That's all it's going to be. So decide, So the players say we're going to play 114 games prorated. And the owners are like, I don't care if you want to play 162. We're only paying for one third. So mm. you can play as many games as you want. So then the rumor was that they said we're going to play 48 games and that at 48 games, but then, uh, and they would, they said only, you know, pay one third. And then the players were going back and forth. But the offer today from the, the uh, management was they were going to pay 75% of the prorated salary, which on playing 76 games, which when Carl Ravitch announced it this morning, it's like, oh, 75% of their salary. That sounds great. That seems like that's going to be fair, mm-hmm. but it's the prorated salary. So 
really they're just getting 34%. I mean, this is sort of like the math problems where you really, like, your kids at home have to practice their math. It's like, well, 75% of a prorated or whatever, it just comes to about 34%. So it's the same thing. And the, and the players are like, no, we're not going to come back. We're not coming back for a season. We're only going to get one third of what we're supposed to get paid. And that's been the major problem. And they're, they're saying, look, we'll do prorated, but we want to pay 114. But the owners are like, all our money's going to come from the playoffs. And they're willing to give some money in the playoffs. And then they threw in something about the compensation on free agents, which you're not going to see a lot of movement on free agents anyway. They're trying to throw things out, but they are really far apart. And it's, it's funny when ESPN reported this earlier, it's like, oh, the major, you know, they're so close. They were close. They're as far as part of they were been. It's, I never thought I would say it, but I, I'm not going to be shocked if a deal doesn't get done here. It just seems like they're they're too far apart, and they don't seem to have a sense of urgency to get this done either. They don't, and, and that is that is it. I don't think it's the end of baseball. This season is so weird, and everything is would be weird anyway, that I'm not willing to say, oh my gosh, baseball is finished if they don't play this year. They can't work this out. It's, it's Because also, you still have the whole idea about how they're going to be safe with COVID and how they're going to work these games and those factors that go into it. So there's a lot of factors that go in, but if they... But they I think people feel that the 48 game schedule, something like that, is really not right. I mean, you can't just. Can't. And, and some of these players are not going to come back and just go. And you play be, more than 48 division games a year. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it would be, and it would be great for teams like the Pirates and the Marlins who are so bad. Who knows? They get on a winning streak, they might get in the playoffs. And this is one of those years where it could be, because that's the advantage of baseball is that, and also the teams that don't have the depth that some of these other teams would have. Well, if you, you know, you could just pitchers are going to pitch every three, four games to get back as long as they get their arm strength there, then you might be able to win with a few pitchers. So it'll be, it would be interesting if they came back but it looks like we're not going to the most you're going to have would be like that 70 80 game level if they but this has to get done fast because with the, they just can't once they announce they're back you see with the NHL and the NBA they can't they still need a month to get ready yeah. to play and then that's what's really disturbing to me is that yeah if they're so far away now if they really need to figure this out within the next couple of days just to make it happen you know it's funny when you talk about a 48 game schedule if there was 48 games last year the Nationals finished last place but the fact that it was 162, they won the World Series. Right. So it's crazy. There's also another aspect in baseball, which I didn't think about. There's weird nuances with these guys' contracts. So they're saying, what, kind, what are we going to do for a um, trade deadline? You know, how much time would we give if we give one? So I was hearing about qualifying offers and how if guys do get traded at the deadline, interesting things happen with their contracts. So that might basically ruin a whole crop of uh, potential free agents not getting dealt at, at the deadline. So there's a lot that baseball needs to square up here. Right. But I guess again, now we're waiting for what, how the union will respond and whether they'll be able to work. But there, again, I am starting to get really negative on this. There is a difference. In, and the players, look, the baseball, they have gone on so many strikes. There's been so many lockouts and all these things. So it's not unusual that people say, oh, I can't believe in a pandemic with all this. that, be, that They've had these problems. Every year that I've been following baseball, there's been like strikes and lockouts. It's been a, the union and the management have been fighting this for a long time. So it's, it isn't a surprise that it's coming up now. Uh, you're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. We'll have Randy Moeller of the Florida Panthers on in just about eight minutes or so. Then Neil Bascom, the author of Faster, joins us at 735. So, Ira, let's talk NBA. And maybe I'm just a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, but it does seem a little odd that they go to 22 teams just enough to squeak Zion Williamson and the Pelicans in. Right. I mean, that was the point. <laughs> they're going to be, they're going to stick. It was interesting though. We're talk, we talk about Michael Jordan all the time. Supposedly he was the one who said, I don't want a convoluted format. I want to have 16 teams, keep it East and West, do it that way. And that's, that's exactly what they're getting. They're getting the 16 teams, but they're going to have nine teams in the East. Washington was the team on the outside and four games out. So Washington is going to play in to see if they get, they'll play 
play like a seven game schedule. And then in the West, they had they had it. They actually have 13 teams for eight spots. So then they'll play it and then the teams will have have those spots. And they're just going to play a normal playoff schedule like they normally do. What will be normal because they don't be traveling anywhere, but they'll be in Disney. And uh, but there's some there's aspects about this whole quarantine in Disney. I mean, by the time they do this in August, I mean, people are going to be at Disney World. There's going to be the park is going to be open. There's going to be people around yep. and they're going to have to live in a bubble and they're going to bring their family. Could you imagine bringing your family and your kids and everything and say, you're in Disney World, but you can't go to any of the rides. You can't do those <laughs> things. I just think it's going to it's still the logistics are going to be an issue about that. And so I but that's sort of that's the plan is they would start and they would begin season begin July 31st. They would end mid-October and then they would start the next season again in December 1st. They only have like a one month off season. Yeah. And the one thing I thought was really, I thought Adam Silver made a terrible mistake. He said that the older coaches would not be able to be on the sidelines. Well, of course, that's age discrimination. They can't do that. And yeah. that was really, I thought, a misstep on the league's part. But you can't say, well, you have a young coach, he can coach on the sidelines, but mm-hmm. an older coach can't. If you can't put a workout arrangement that the older coaches can't be involved in, that's ridiculous. Yeah, and what do you just set an arbitrary number like 70? So well, the 68-year-old coach is okay and the 71 Right, and, and so some of the older, I think Steve Clifford said, look, I'm in better shape than, than the coaches that are much younger than me. So, I mean, I thought that, I, I mean, everyone, everyone always compliments the NBA. It's almost like Adam Silver has this veneer around him that he can't do any wrong. Anything. And, yeah. but, so whenever he does make, a, I think, a terrible mistake like that, a statement he doesn't get criticized for there was actually a poll question this morning on one of these national shows who's the best commissioner and he blew it out of the water compared to uh, everybody else on that list i don't think a lot of people even knew who gary bettman was they thought it was just some some weird name thrown in there um i'll give the nba some credit though ira you know the nhl they're getting there but they don't have the specifics done yet the nba they know their location they've got that all set and they're beginning to put the guidelines in so i'll give them a little bit of credit there okay we will we'll give them a little <laughs> let's talk about the ncaa football they're reporting, like as of today, there's teams that are coming to facilities, and that's what's gonna. That's with the strength and the conditioning coaches getting these players. I mean, that's the one thing the coaches have been. If you understand about college football, these players almost at the schools year round. I mean, that's what they mm-hmm. live. They live there to lift and everything. And the comment that these teams would say is, "Look, now that this the the states have opened up, I'd rather them not work out at Lifetime or LA Fitness or whatever. I want them in our facilities and getting safer. ready. So they're going to be there. It'll be safer. They can train with the coaches and train with those strength and conditioning. So they're not. They're not not doing drills, but they're getting in shape. And that w- this is really important for the fact of college football, because I was afraid that they were going to say in August, okay, college football's back. It would take a long time to get these kids. If these kids are now in some of these facilities in June, that's going to be plenty of time to get them in shape for a college football season. So I thought that was really important. I think if you ask any of the coaches, they're like getting them here. Now, some schools are, are behind the eight ball. I mean, it's, in Michigan, they're not back. I mean, it's going to be this advantage, but those schools, like in Florida, they're back. I mean, the SEC schools, they're back right now. That's going to be a huge advantage to have these players lifting, running, doing all those strength and conditioning, stretching, those things. What's um, going on with the NFL besides uh, Pro Football Focus releasing their top 50 players? That's <laughs> about the only news I got this week. They're still going. I mean, I get from the Steelers, they're selling season tickets. I mean, the NFL is on this thing that we're going to have 50,000 people in the stands. I, they really feel like that's what it is. I mean, they're on that. I mean, if you look at the numbers from COVID like and whatever, they are they are not they're not deviating at all from the fact is, look, we're going to have stadiums. It's going to look like it did year before, and that's what's going to happen. So they're, they have not, there's not, when we talked to initially when this happened, that they were going to go to some of their quarantine facilities and do those things, but they have, they're totally focused on having this uh, the season the way it is, and, and that's what's going to happen. If the NFL was serious about safety, they'd be at the uh, Buffalo Bills games watching these, <laughs> preventing these guys from jumping off <laughs> RVs into tables. So I think the NFL is going to let us play. Um, 
you had predicted on this show that tennis would be one of the easiest sports to get back off the ground, and it doesn't seem like that's happened at all. It's. I think the tennis thing, and I know we talked tennis, and I had Francois TFO on. We had the Bryan brothers on. I love tennis. is big here in South Florida. And it's the sport that people said, oh, boy, that'll be back fast, that and golf. But what's really happened is that tennis is such an international sport, and the players live all across the world, yeah. and it's just difficult. And UFC is fighting and finding that with their foreign fighters, how they get them in. And the fact is it's Djokovic says, look, I don't see how I can play in the US Open. It's going to be too difficult to have these players in. I don't want all these protocols. You can't just have me go out there playing a court. I'm not going to do that. I have to have my trainers and my staff. Like these, like, like I have a staff of seven, eight people. I can't just go to this by myself and play and just throw the balls out. And the doll said the same thing. So now you're having these top players push back on that. And they've already canceled Wimbledon. And I think there's this push there. And, and the players are really saying, look, I'm ready to start next year. Let's start Australian Open in January. Let's do it that way. But I mean, there's a push. I don't know if we're going to see the US Open in tennis. And also the, the US Open makes their money mainly from fans going. If there's no fans at these, I mean, I've been the US Open like 15 straight years. And if there's no fans there, I just don't, this tennis, we might have been wrong. I might have been wrong about tennis. <laughs> I wasn't thinking that way either. You know, it seemed like that'd be the easiest one, just like golf, but um, hasn't panned out that way. Just about two minutes till Randy Moeller of the Florida Panthers joins us. Um, how's golf looking? I? Well, this weekend, we got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We're going to get the Colonial in Fort Worth, which is usually one of those, Fort Worth, Texas, one of those tournaments that maybe you get a few top 10 performers. Well, now it hasn't been golf for 13 weeks. She had eight of the top 10 in the world, only Adam Scott and Tommy Fleetwood, because they're in Europe and can't come yeah, back, or Australia and Europe. 16 of the top 20, no Tiger Woods, but as you, we saw a couple weeks ago, Tiger's ready to go, but this is the tournament he's not going to go. But uh, this is a famous tournament. Ben Hogan won this tournament five times. But it's going to be great to see this comeback. I mean, Sun J.M., people, he was hot before this happened. Rory McIlroy, we saw him on TV. He's playing well. So I'm, I'm pumped for this. And then I was reading some good stories about how, boy, some players like Jordan Spieth, who's ranked number 56 in the world. Jason Day, who was former number one, who's 51. And even Mickelson is 63rd in the world. This was a chance. I didn't realize that. This 13-week period where they didn't play gives them a chance to reset their season, get their act together, and maybe they're going to come on strong. So, look, I'm pumped to watch golf. This this is going to be real golf. This isn't some corny little thing. There won't be fans there, but that's going to be it. And then they go to Hilton Head the following week, Connecticut after that. And then there's going to be two tournaments in at the Memorial in Ohio, back-to-back, a premium world tournament, and then the Memorial, which they're thinking Tiger might go to one of the will definitely be in the memorial. Did you submit for your master's tickets? I know the lottery was this past week. <laughs> I do every year. I never get anything back. Well, it looks like you know. It looks like the masters really figured it out right. They went so far out into October. They they planned it correctly, and they're going to be like it'll be almost now. They're set to be like the Super Bowl of golf and, and that type of time. So, uh, but it'll be it'll be. I'm look interested. The PGA Championships in August 6th and 9th in San Francisco and California is still not open. I, I'm starting to that would be the one where I'd be nervous about if they're going to be able to do the PGA Championship in San Francisco in, in the first week of August. Ira, let's go to uh, Randy Moeller here from the Florida Panthers. It's Ira on Sports. Randy, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today. And I got to just ask first and foremost, how is everyone in the Panthers family holding up? Well, they're holding up as best they can, and, uh, you know, thanks for asking. It's been difficult for everyone, but uh, we, you know, as long as you uh, go about this uh, level-headed and understand, and, and, and I think the, the, not only the NHL, but the Florida Panthers have been very, uh, very fluid, very transparent on, on uh, what the situation is and keeping fans informed uh, as, you know, as they're, they're getting news from the NHL about the uh, – you know, resume the play and, and the protocols and that. But a lot of this stuff is pretty fluid. It changes on a daily basis. And, and obviously, you have to take 
the uh, the wisdom and the guidance from you know the professionals, the the the, the government and the, and the medical professionals on what they can do, what they can't do, and what and what the timelines are. But it, it is encouraging. We got some great news uh, early uh, last week of of the players are going to be able to uh, get back this week and start uh, skating uh, voluntarily in small groups and and so. I guess the best way to describe it is baby steps. We've all been through a lot. It doesn't matter what business you're in or, or not. But as a as the sporting world and specifically the Florida Panthers, we'll take this good news as a first step in what they're, they're going to call a four-phase uh, uh, situation. And we're in the first phase right now. So, Randy, you must be just absolutely thrilled getting hockey back up and running. How do you feel about the NHL's proposed 24-team tournament? And could you maybe explain to us a little bit what's going to happen if we're not familiar with what they decided? Yeah, I, yeah and I am thrilled. Uh, when, the, when the pause started on uh, March 12th, the Panthers were outside of the, of the eight-team playoff uh, format in the, uh, in the Eastern Conference. So, by including the Panthers and expanding the 24 teams, the first uh, action that the Panthers will see, it's a play-in. And so they're going to have to go against the New York Islanders for a, one of the spots to actually go into the quarterfinals of uh, the Eastern Conference. It's a play-in. It's not, this isn't technically the playoffs. They'll have to win the best-of-five series against the New York Islanders uh, and then they'll qualify where they'll be uh, seated uh, against one of the top teams in the Eastern Conference, either the Boston Bruins or the Tampa Bay Lightning. So, um, but that's basically the format. They, how it's going to work is when the NHL and the NHLPA with Players Association feel that they are ready to resume the, the play and the play-in and, and lead to the playoffs, um, they will pick two neutral site uh, cities, two cities that will be hosting. Uh, both of them will host 12 teams in the play-in and in the playoffs, and then they'll decide where the, where the finals will be. It's a little, obviously it's a little different, but we're in pretty strange times and unique times right now. The one thing that everybody is happy about, the players, the fans, the media, everybody, the league, everybody involved, is they will... Uh, 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 God willing, they will award the Stanley Cup. And it will probably be in fall after they go through this playoff series. So um, that's basically what it is. It's, you don't want to get it too technical right now, and there's still a lot of the, uh, uh, the details that have to be worked out. The NHL Player Association and the, and the league are, are working uh, towards that to make sure the number one priority is the safety of the players to be able to go back and to finish this, uh, to finish the season. We are speaking with Randy Moeller. He's your Florida Panthers television analyst. So, Randy, you said it. You're slated to match up with the Islanders. Um, despite playing the Islanders three times this season, you weren't able to get any wins. But I got to tell you, I really like this matchup for the Panthers. I, I feel like they're a better team on paper, better goaltender. I- I'm not going to be surprised if the Panthers move on here. No, I won't be surprised either, and uh, you're absolutely right. All uh, three games, uh, except for the last one, there was an empty net goal, but there were one-goal games. Yeah. Um, what really stood out in doing my homework was, uh, and going back, was uh, how great the goaltending was. It was a low, there were low-scoring games. 
Uh, the goaltenders were outstanding. Now, what you're going to see is the New York Islanders are the ninth best defensive team in the NHL when the pause uh, happened in the NHL. The Panthers were the sixth best offensive team. So you're going to have basically uh, the offense of the Panthers against the defense and the great goaltending of the New York Islanders. Both teams have excellent coaches, Barry Trotz, uh, Stanley Cup winner, one of the winningest coaches in the NHL, and of course we all know uh, 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 about Q Quenville, Joel Quenville for the coach for the Panthers. So, uh, a quick synopsis: It'll be offense against defense. Can the Panthers get some offense and some scoring from their bottom six forwards? And and for the and especially on the power play, and will the Islanders be able to keep this uh, offensive juggernaut of the Panthers off the score sheet? That's basically what the series will come down to. And I just have a good feeling about our Florida Panthers here. So, you know, here's an interesting question, Randy, and I was thinking about it myself. What have you heard about off-season operations for the NHL? How is this going to affect free agency, the draft, the start of next season? Have you heard anything? No, and, uh, well, I shouldn't say no, but uh, this is all uh, going to be decided fairly soon. I think the NHL, and I, and I, and I agree with it, there, I know it's overused, the phrase, but baby steps. They're, they're really uh, trying to take a step back and look how all this is going to play out. And obviously, getting back to play, get the players back on the ice, get training camps going, and then eventually uh, resume the season with the playoffs. That's number one. But you're right. There's all kinds of question marks as far as free agency, the, the NHL draft that historically has been uh, put on at the end of, uh, end of June. Um, I, I really don't want to uh, take a guess at uh, what's going to happen. There's so many scenarios being discussed right now. But as I said, and I've said it a couple of times, and I apologize, any decisions that are going to be made will have to include the NHL Player Association along with the NHL and the teams. Randy, will you be actually broadcasting the games live? Will it be virtual in terms of watching it on TV? Will they, ha- will they actually have media uh, broadcasting these games uh, in the arena? Because I, I guess there's so many teams there, it would seem like it would be difficult to have every, all the different analysts and uh, commentators there. That hasn't been decided, but what we anticipate is where the games will be played, the NHL will, will, uh, will broadcast in what they call a dirty feed, well, they'll, they'll, the, all the cameras and the trucks will be there with limited, with limited staff, and they will broadcast, and then they'll send it out to the RSNs, uh, including Fox Sports Florida. Uh, and then uh, your guess is as good as mine, whether we're uh, Goldie and I are, are, are broadcasting um, from the booth at the BB&T Center, whether we're doing it in a studio at Fox, whether we have to do it at home. Um, <laughs> We will be broadcasting, though. We know that. Um, and, and we're pretty confident that we'll have the, our usual pregame show, the intermission show. Um, some things probably will be a little bit different. I, I don't anticipate that there'll be, you know, live interviews uh, during the game or right or walk-offs in the intermission because of the, uh, you know, the, the social distancing rules. But those things all have to be worked out. But that's how I... I foresee how they'll be broadcasting the games. Now, remember, uh, the Panthers, this is a play-in, so they can broadcast not only the play-in, the series against the Islanders, but also, too, Fox has the rights to broadcast the first round. So if the Panthers make it out of that five-game series with the Islanders, then they'll roll right in and we'll be able to cover um, the next round. But also, 
even if they would, if the Panthers, uh, 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 God willing, uh, make it into the second round and possibly the third round, Fox will have full coverage as far as the uh, pregame and postgame shows, and that, uh, and of course, all with the social media, the uh, Fox Sport Go app that you can. Uh, so there's going to be all kinds of coverage. So how this is all going to play out, we're still waiting um, uh, from the, the the leadership from the NHL. They will come to the decision. They'll they'll outline what we can, what we can't do, and how we uh, they suggest we broadcast the games. That's what I anticipate is going to happen. And that should be decided here within the next two to three weeks. And also the other question is we see when we watch the Korean baseball, they're putting dolls in the stands to look at like people and, uh, and maybe some pumping in some crowd noise. There's been discussions about the pumping in the crowd noise, those type of things to, to, to make it feel like from the television perspective that it's, there's a crowd there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you know, when there's, when there's, um, when there's obstacles and, and when you're, when you're, you're up against, um, certain situations that you're forced to be in, into and that there's also opportunities as well. And, and, and what's been floated around, and I don't know if, if, if this is going to be a reality or not, but if, if there, if these games are going to be played to finish out the season and the playoffs, um, without fans, that gives a great opportunity to, to use the lower level and 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 uh, and, and really um, take a good look and experiment with different camera angles uh, that are that normally would be taken up by obviously uh, fans in the in the seats. So there's a great opportunity, and there's been a lot of discussion about that of of uh, getting closeness with the with with the the play on the ice to show the speed of the ice. So I'm kind of excited about that. Now whether that will hold once the fans get back uh, and we get to some kind of normalcy, um, we'll have to wait and see. But you know, out of out of adversity, there's always uh, challenges, but there's always uh, there's always opportunities to explore and try and uh, specifically how we broadcast the game or any sporting event in that matter. The way we're what we're going through right now, I know NASCAR, um, uh, Major League Baseball, even basketball, they're all exploring with different uh, different uh, ways. And and you have to understand too that uh, there's a lot of new. Uh, technology that keeps coming out on a weekly basis. I mean, um, I'm doing meetings now with Zoom and Microsoft uh, chats and all kinds of different apps and, and that to be able to communicate that we never use. We weren't using these four months ago. So now we, uh, how do you introduce that? How do you get the fans involved? And uh, with all these different social platforms, I, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be, I think it's going to be once we get back to some kind of normalcy and that with the fans, they're going to have greater access to what the sport is all about. Randy, I would love to see you and Goldie broadcasting from your living rooms as we get these uh, get these games underway. So, Randy, you and everyone I hear on the True Oldie channel knows that I love going to Panthers games. I love the BB&T Center. I know we can't buy tickets now, but if we'd like to acquire about season tickets for next year, maybe ticket packages, or just learn more about the Florida Panthers, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, and 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 or the sales reps of the Florida Panthers are excellent. And if you have any questions, just call the puck line at nine five four eight three five puck, or email, or go on the Florida Panthers uh, website, floridapanthers.com. And uh, yeah, there's some great opportunities in that. And and once we get back, the fans are are going to have some excellent deals and and be able to experience the sport live. But uh, here's a chance to check in and maybe talk with a sales representative who can explain a little bit more in detail of what the, they have to offer. 
He's Randy Moeller, your Florida Panthers television analyst. Thank you so much for coming by Iron Sports. Great stuff from Randy, as always. Love checking in with him whenever we have got something hockey-related that we need sorted out. So, Ira, I didn't have much going on this weekend, just like pretty much everybody else. UFC 250 was, was a really good event. I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I Sean O'Malley. So the, the funny thing is the people who don't really follow the UFC, the story was Conor McGregor announces his retirement. Now, is this the biggest joke? I mean, it's like how many times – like some people thought, wasn't he retired or whatever? Yeah. I mean, it's just like he's 31 years old and it's his third or fourth or fifth retirement. So how is that a lead story? And then they're talking about how can we define Conor's career? He is not retiring. I mean, it's the most biggest joke of a story. I can't believe people ran with the Conor McGregor retirement story. I've heard people say fighters never retire. (laughs) If someone comes and knocks on your door for the right price, they're going to go right back in in their respective ring and fight. He's done it so many times, and I can't believe it's a story. And he did it at 6 a.m. Who retires at 6 a.m.? So it's like (laughs) he probably was out all night partying and then said, I'm going to retire. But no, Sean, the first fight was Sean O'Malley. uh, is like 22 years old. He had this one-punch knockout of Eddie Weiland, and that was great. I mean, you might see um, O'Malley as a crazy hair. He's really trying to come up to be like a young Conor McGregor. So that's sort of what McGregor was. He has a lot of flair, a lot of flash. So he's 12-0 and now. So he's this young fighter in the UFC that they're pushing into the things. Now, the one thing is that they always say, and this is what Dana White, is the sport is the sport, not the stars. And now we got McGregor and you got John Jones and Jorge Masvidal. These big names are like holding out. And then it's like, oh, UFC's in trouble. All their big stars don't want to fight. And Dana White keeps saying, look, it's not about these stars. I We'll create more stars. And uh, so that's that's one of the battles that the UFC is having. But Sean O'Malley is a good, you know, a good person in terms of coming in the future. And then the other fights were great. Uh, they had four of the top ten Bantamweights fight. And Aljamon Sterling, who's the number two ranked Bantamweight, he uh, fought Corey Sanhagen. And Sterling, we talk about the sleeper hold. I mean, everyone talks about sleeper <laughs> holds. And we actually put a sleeper hold on Sangoven in the first round and put him to sleep. And that was a, that was a good win. And then Rafael Asuna fought Corey Garbrandt. Garbrandt was a former champion and that was so cool and the, at, with no time left in the second like the, the clock you know the bell rang for the final the end of the round and at that moment Gar- Garbrandt went d- dipped down like almost on his knees stood up and just a right hook I thought I love that punch and knocked he may have became my favorite fighter <laughs> and knocked Rafael Asuna out and it was just like at first I said oh my god he hit after the bell but then when you when I saw it live I said he hit after the bell but then when you when you actually look at it on the replay it was like he hit it the right time like it was perfect but what a I mean to knock Knock someone out, and there's no saved by the bell again in the uh, in the UFC. So that was that was over then. <laughs> and what about the title fight? We were talking about how there's not many sports where women can carry the sport. Uh, maybe outside of tennis and UFC, and uh, Nunez, she's every every bit the part. Well, I wish you had the million. You texted me when you saw the the one guy wagered a million dollars on Amanda Nunez to win, and he won 166,000. Yeah. I mean, Nunez is defeated, has cleaned out the 145 weight, the 135 weight. She is phenomenal. She's the greatest of all time. Time. Uh, she and then Felicia Spencer. You saw how this fight was going to go because everyone said, "Well, Nunes is great on her feet, but when they get to the mat, Felicia Spencer is going to dominate her." And I think in the first round, Nunes like, "Okay, let's go to the mat and just start <laughs> beating, just killing her on the mat." And it's like there's no. So if this was Felicia Spencer's strong point, and Nunes was a stronger. You saw what was, and it was. It probably should have ended early. Nunes, I think, was Nunes. Did I think not, they wanted to let Spencer finish the fight they because wanted, she was holding, not holding her own, but she wasn't getting 
hurt. And I, and I think Nunes carried her at the end. I mean, you talk about someone who I think Nunes could have ended it whenever she wanted. Probably. And I think she just wanted it. But Amanda Nunes is phenomenal. And I, you know, they're always saying, who can she fight? She's bought, she beat every one of the top contenders. She has destroyed everyone. And I mean, I think the one fight that'd be interesting if Ronda Rousey, you talk about coming back out of retirement, yeah. someone like Ronda Rousey would say, I've dedicated, I've changed on this, on that. And then I think that would be a big money fight for Amanda Nunes to come back. I mean, she lost in, you know, the first few seconds in the first round, the, the one time they fought. But I really, really think that uh, if Rousey comes, the Rousey Nunes fight would actually move the needle. It, it definitely would, and you know, just for the star factor, if nothing else. But I, I, watching Nunes fight, I think there's a lot of guys she could take. I mean, she <laughs> is just a complete package, especially when it comes to standing and throwing punches. She does. She, I, I don't, I don't know how to put it in words, but I'd be very scared if I had to fight her. Well, she had. They had. Uh, she had 120 strikes. Whereas Spencer had 36, so almost a hundred more strikes yeah. in a in a fight. And, and again, Spencer is an elite. Like the, she's fighting. Spencer was the champion of Vitigas. Like she's not fighting tomato cans. She's fighting the number <laughs> one contenders and totally destroying them. Yeah, no, it was fun to watch. It was an interesting Saturday night. Um, what talk a little boxing? Well, tomorrow night. There's just going to be interesting. If you want to catch this, Shakur Stevenson is, I think he's like 22, 23 years old. He's a featherweight star. He was he in, the, in the last Olympics. He won the he won the silver medal. He's from Newark, New Jersey, and he's 13 and 0. You, this is a fighter that I think people should catch and watch. He's he's it's he's a featherweight now and from bantamweight. So he, it's he's a small smaller fighter, but uh, it's 126 pounds. But he could be like one of the big next stars of boxing. And it's on ESPN free TV. Show starts at seven o'clock tomorrow. It's live, you know, it's no fans, but from Vegas. But I think to get a chance to see Shakur Stevenson fight. Now, the guy he's fighting, Carabella, isn't that good. But it would be interesting to see. Uh, Stevenson has like one of those alphabet titles. He doesn't have the real title in that division. <laughs> but this is a chance to see Shakur Stevenson. And the interesting thing about this bout also is Bacala Mayer is a woman's female boxer. And she was found with COVID. So it was asymmetric. Oh, wow. So she's off the cards. So it was one of those things where we talked about is that these players and teams, like, you you know, we just talk about, oh, McCann Letters off a card. But what if it was the NBA? playing and it's like LeBron James tested positive for COVID and he's out for a game and Anthony Davis you have you know totally things would change from that um you're listening to Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. Mike Balsamo here. Um, we got Neil Bascom coming up in you know, three or four minutes. He's the author of Faster. This is going to be great. But Ira, let's talk a little NASCAR. Well, Kevin Harvick, it was uh, the race in Atlanta. He dominated. I mean, this was his 51st win, his 12th all time. He was just, I think he led I mean, the final 55 laps. But it was exciting to win. And now, Wednesday night, we talked about how NASCAR has to take these this chance and, and run during the week. They're playing at Marshallsville, Tennessee on Wednesday night. And then Sunday night, they're coming back to Miami. They're going to run a race in Miami. So it's going to be, so we've got NASCAR. You don't be able to see it, but it'll be on TV. But I got to give NASCAR a lot of credit. They are getting fans. They're, they're running these races. And again, we talked about these other sports to, to try to get in the, you know, if you're there, you want to watch something on TV, you want, you just want to watch, I mean, ESPN is pushing this Korean baseball, but I just, <laughs> I've not been into that too much. I'm glad you, you made a reference uh, to, to Randy Moeller about the Pokemon um, statues or dolls that they're putting up at the games. That <laughs> is cool. I think that is funny. It's cute. Um, and you know, you know, they can, you can go ahead and donate them to children's hospitals after, say, you know, say they were at the game. It's a, it's a really good idea. Um, let's go. We got Neil Bascom on the line here. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, and we have in a, a esteemed author, Neil Bascom, who wrote a book called Faster. And uh, Neil, thanks a lot for coming in uh, to Iron Sports. Thanks for having me, Ira. So, when your publisher showed me the book, I, it was about a French Jewish race car driver. And a f- American socialite, a French American socialite race car owner, driver, 
against Hitler and the best war machine he had in terms of putting cars together. And I was like, this is a good fiction novel. And then I didn't realize that this is actually a true story that you wrote about because I had never heard about it. And it was just amazing and fascinating and just even more the fact it was. So I just I think what I'm surprised about is it took for you to write the book for this long, for this to come out to the public mind in terms of this great battle between uh, the the French Jewish driver and uh, Nazi Germany. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 pretty startling too i mean the the story itself is is sort of very cinematic and you know when i was first sort of tipped off about the story the, the the legend i was given was there was this car or the series of four cars that were built in france and when the germans invaded um paris and took over they tried to find these cars and have them destroyed they stole all these records from the automobile club of france and they basically the germans wanted the history of this car uh, eliminated uh, from the books. And I wouldn't say that that is why um, that we haven't heard about this tale until then. I think it's largely because these great events with Rene Dreyfus and Lucy Schell happened right at the cusp before World War II started. And I think they just got washed away um, in you know all the great events that happened afterwards. Sort of like the Raiders of the Lost Ark almost in terms of trying to deal <laughs> with Harrison Ford. But as uh, someone who who is interested in cars, but I'm not a car aficionado at all, it was inter- in the book you described the 20s and 30s about the cars. And when you mentioned names like a Tor Bugatti, the Maserati bodies, Enzo Ferrari, we're not talking about the names that we see today. These are the real people that founded these cars and they got their, their, their acclaim because they were making these fast cars at a time when people were not like, you know, 10, you said 10 miles an hour was fast and suddenly they're going 50 and 100 miles an hour. So talk about the fact that this was like the golden era of, of car manufacturing with all these famous names yeah i mean it was it was fascinating to me too that you know all these names that we know of now porsche alfa romeo maserati bugatti all these sort of claim names i mean this period of time really the late 20s and the 30s was was really the genesis moment for for all these different players and the cars that you would see you know prior to that period you know, they were going, maybe they would go at a top level over 100 miles an hour. But it was this period of time, really over the course of, of six or seven years, where the speed of these cars, uh, these engineers, the, the greats, Maserati, Porsche, um, Bugatti, were, were, and particularly the Germans, were investing so much in the technology of these cars. And so although they made no accommodation for safety, um, there were no helmets, no seat belts. You really had to kind of brace yourself uh, by your knees inside this car. No roll bars, nothing like that. But these cars were, went from going 100 miles an hour to sometimes going over 250 miles an hour. And so it was just this alarming um, <laughs> advance in speed and became a much more dangerous sport. So it was kind of this golden age. But it was also one that was absolutely deadly. And on every weekend, you would see um, drivers uh, perishing almost. Right. I mean, you were talking about like they were riding on courses. Um, things were going to come ahead, like rocks were hitting them. They were crashing from just that. Um, they would drive through rain. I mean, today there's a rain on the race course. They black flag. They stop the race. They would just drive right through the rain. Cars were blowing up, catching on fire. Just a And of course, you said there was no protection, no nothing. And uh, it was just but these people, they just loved taking the risk. All these drivers, it was but they were they were viewed as almost like the modern day astronauts almost. So taking these risks when a risk to do it and. And, uh, but it was just that was what they wanted to do. 
Yeah, and they were, you know, I mean, the thing that you have in, in faster, particularly before the nationalism takes over auto racing, is is these race car drivers are the celebrities of the age. You know, as I think I write in the book, they're sort of matadors of their time. I mean, Rudy Caracciola, the, the great German driver, I mean, he had made his name uh, the Regenmeister, the Rainmaster, or Bernd uh, Rosemeyer, also a German driver, um, was was the Fogmaster. I mean, they would drive in whatever conditions, um, no matter how deadly. And you're and you're right. I mean, they were they were absolutely, you know, in many cases thrill seekers, <laughs> but but very brave ones. And to a man, they just absolutely loved driving and were willing to do sort of risk anything to to be at the top of their game. And you spend time in your book about Rene Dreyfus, the protagonist, um, born Jewish, but never really identified himself as Jewish. But the other people put it upon him that you're Jewish. So it made him like during the, the 30s when he said, you know, he could have run, he could have ran for the German team. But like, of course, the Germans weren't going to have him on the team. And his name Dreyfus was uh, was associated with Jewish a whole, with the whole Dreyfus affair in France itself. But it was interesting when he grew up, he, he, his family wanted to go in the paper. Or I think he went with the brother and he said in a pa- the paper business and he goes, I'll be the driver. I'll drive around. And he just wanted to say, keep buying me a faster cars because I can, I can go to more places if I can get a faster car. Yeah. <laughs> from the, from the very beginning, I mean, he just craved and loved speed. He wanted to get uh, behind the wheel of a car. Uh, he kept buying faster and faster cars. I mean, he came from kind of a middle-class background, Rene Dreyfus. And so, you know, a lot of these top race car drivers came from relatively wealth, wealthy families. Some were counts, um, but R- Rene kind of came up uh, a bit from his bootstraps and had to sort of finagle his, his mother into getting him a car and was just a really talented, uh, daring driver. And by 1930, kind of catapulted himself up into the top echelons of, of Grand Prix racing by winning the, the second ever run uh, Monaco Grand Prix. And really, over the next six years, was one of the top ten or dozen drivers in in the world on the Grand Prix. And you know what fascinated me about the story and why why I wrote it was, you know, what was it about nationalism um, that a changed Grand Prix driving, and what was it in Renee and and actually Lucy Shell that made them sort of stand up and and want to take on on the Germans. And Renee, in many ways, was kind of the reluctant hero. Um, you know, he wasn't invested in, in religion at all. And it was kind of Lucy Shell who ultimately hired her, him for her team um, that kind of pushed him to, to kind of be the symbolic hero of, of, of kind of the Jews against uh, the Third Reich. And then you bring you talk about the antagonist, really, Rudy Crociola, who is more also in some ways reluctant. Uh, he, I mean, he wants to be a race car driver. That's what he did. But he ended up becoming the face of Nazi Germany. And in, in the uh, uh, you had the story about in terms of with car racing. But you told the story in the book where he won a race for Mercedes. And uh, they said, oh, you got to deliver it to a, an, an important customer. And he drove the car to Hitler's house before he was running Germany and then drove Hitler around in the car. And just but that whole association between Caracciola and Nazi Germany and how Hitler was using the car industry and the, the fact that we're going to make the fastest cars, we're going to win all the races, we're going to dominate the Grand Prix, bringing back and showing, trying to, to, to show Nazi Germany is better than everything else in terms of, and Rudy was the face of that, him and Bernd Rosemary were the two faces of uh, the, that growth for the, the Nazi Germany. I mean, what was interesting about to me about Rudy's sort of background, I mean, if you were to read about him in, in other books or articles, he's either painted one of two ways. He's either painted as 
as, you know, kind of evil representative of the Reich, or they don't even really mention any association that he had with the, the Nazi party or the Third Reich, and he was just this great German racing driver. And really, you know, what's interesting about Rudy is, is the gray parts. You know, I mean, he was uh, not political. He loved race car driving. He didn't care about politics, much like Rene Dreyfus didn't care about religion. But in 1933 and 34, he got into a terrible uh, race car uh, crash, uh, became uh, hobbled by it. He lost his wife in an accident. And really, the only thing he had left in, in life was, was racing cars. And so getting back uh, into a Grand Prix car was everything to him. And so when Hitler began investing heavily into to the German firms, Mercedes and Audi, in, in order to bring Germany to sort of the forefront of, of Grand Prix racing, um, you know, Rudy was willing to, to kind of, you know, accept whatever the Third Reich said, um, be you know, the poster boy for them if it meant he could get in the car. Uh, and even though he didn't subscribe to, to, to Nazism, he, he made those choices, he made those decisions. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think he's, you know, kind of sacrificed his soul for it. Right. And then you had Lucy Shell, who, I mean, we talk about Danica Patrick being this famous trailblazer. <laughs> Here's in the 20s and 30s. She not only was she financing cars because she was rich enough and she was glamorous and all that, but she would ride. And you, you talk about these rallies where they would go from uh, all across Europe in these races that would take a week or 10 or two weeks to do. And she was one of the top rally racers in the country as herself in the 20s. Uh, just amazing character in her own right. You could have a movie about just Lucy. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll admit that I kind of fell a little bit in love with Lucy Shell. Uh, I mean, she was, as you mentioned, this this kind of pioneer, and she was a speed queen, one of the earliest race car rally drivers. I had this this great scene in Faster, and it was one of kind of the finds of, in my research of where a French journalist followed her on a Monte Carlo race, and he's in the back seat, and you know. She's driving basically from upper Norway all the way down to Monaco and driving through these caverns of ice and the roads are slippery and it's extremely dangerous and people are dying. And, you know, the, the more difficult, the more challenging things became, the riskier, the sort of wider the smile on her face grew. I mean, she would drive with broken arms. She, you know, it was almost impossible to write about Lucy without her kind of bursting from the page because she, you know, she dominated every room she was in and, Ultimately, you know, her story sort of transitions from being the speed queen, this, the top-ranked American rally driver, to about 1935-36, where, you know, she's kind of hanging up her racing overalls, but still wants to be invested in sport, and really wants to be the person who takes on the Germans and, and sort of knocks them off their perch uh, as the best in the Grand Prix. Right, and... When Hitler, as we just said, when Hitler came to power, he took this focus on on car racing and cars in general, wanting to to build the German uh, auto industry. And so instead of there was Daimler Benz, which was Mercedes, and then there was that gr a group of Audi and Porsche, which was you called the Auto Union. And, and instead of giving each one was in trying to become the favorite to Hitler, and so he said it, he just gave it to both. He was giving money. So there was two teams. There was the Mercedes team, and then there was the Auto Union team. And then you talked about how that that battle between those two uh to try to get the favor of hitler was so great in terms of trying to go faster and faster and faster uh in terms of that battle 
Yeah, so I mean, there was definitely this rivalry between Mercedes and On Union, um, and it's you know when I looked through the old documents in Stuttgart and, and elsewhere, these these firms, I mean, they were they were at each other's throats the whole way through because they were, as you said, you know, bidding for uh, Hitler's attention. And you know, the second speech that Hitler ever gave after rising to power. Uh, was about automobiles, was at the Berlin Motor Show. And he made it very clear that, you know, one, uh, it was, you know, by Germany conquering the Grand Prix, it would be a huge propaganda bonanza uh, for the country. And sort of more subtly, um, he was was sort of popularizing uh, auto sport in order to bring young people into learning about how to drive and how to take care of cars, because that was ultimately his goal was to create, you know, this vast motorized uh, infantry. And so he needed drivers for that. So so it was more about more than about sport. It was about more than propaganda. It was really creating his war machine. This this battle of the Grand Prix was a pretext for something uh, much more sinister. And then I guess the the face of that would have been Bern Rosemary, the other driver between Rudy Crociola. So that was the one he was sort of, he embraced Nazism and looked the part and, and was married to the, the perfect person. To, and they were, you know, he was like the face of it at first. And, and, and I guess that rivalry between Bern Rosemary and Rudy Crociola, they ended up having, trying to set the speed records. And you went in detail about how uh, there was this battle where Byrne had the record and they would race on the Autobahn. Just they would shut the roads down and, and have these and who could hit the fastest speed. And then ended up, Rose and Mary ended up dying in, in one of these races. I mean, the, what they were doing again, I mean, the, this battle between Auto Union and Mercedes, and they, they knew they were putting their drivers at great risk. I mean, pushing the speed boundaries, going over 250 miles an hour in these cars that that if you actually, you know, pick up a copy of Faster and look in the photographs, I mean, they look like um, space jets. I mean, they're surrounded in aluminum clad. You can't see the wheels. There's a bubble over the roof. And these things uh, going that fast with that kind of suspension, I mean, Bernd Rosemeyer would write about how just moving the, the steering wheel uh, a millimeter or two in the wrong direction would, would leave you somersaulting through the air. And, you know, Rudy writes of, of, of this sort of absolute horror of driving at these, at these speeds and what exhaustion it, it gave him. And, you know, it would take hours for him to settle down afterwards. But they were pushing the boundaries, and they were pushing the boundaries because Third Reich wanted to not only rule the Grand Prix, but they wanted to rule the speed records. And, you know, ultimately it caught Bernd Mosmeyer his life and kind of more dastardly than even that is that once his death uh, happened, he was, he became again this propaganda instrument. Uh, there was a great funeral, uh, and you know, he just was, gave his life for the Reich is, is how they put it. And then you mentioned in the book about how that four-year period where the, the German cars just dominated. And then the, if they didn't win, this, the next ones were the Italian, the Italian cars with Mussolini using him. So the whole nationalism of the sport and where cars were started in France. So it was sort of the Bugatti of the, the French and the French were sort of left out of the whole thing uh, in terms of the fact that they were they couldn't compete with the with the Italians and the Germans. And then you mentioned ones in the part of the book about how they decided, let's have a race for a million francs. If somebody can hit to 145 miles an hour and have fastest. And then that was a, that was sort of this speed test. And that's where, uh, how Renee Dreyfus and then Lucy met up in terms of her sponsoring this Delahaye car that was another French car in order to try to, to get this record and get that million francs. 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was became kind of like a space race in, in some ways. You know, who, who could get to the speed record first? And I think what's so incredible about the Lucy, <clears throat> what's so incredible about the Lucy Shell story is, you know, she's she, she's a rich American heiress. She has all the money in the world, um, but she decides to spend it all um, building a, a Grand Prix car from scratch, and so she taps the Delahaye firm. Delahaye uh, was this a storied French automobile firm, but by 1930s, they were on the edge of bankruptcy. Uh, they hadn't really built, been competing in, in any sort of sports car or race car events for years, but they have this very good uh, young French engineer named uh, Jean-Francois. And she goes to Delahaye and asks them to, to start uh, to build her a car. And over the course of a year, they do exactly that. And it's this incredible leap of faith uh, not only on Lucy's part, but on Delahaye's part, and then ultimately uh, Rene Dreyfus's part. On, on you know, he really at that point was was kind of a jockey without a horse. Uh, the best teams had banned him, and so he didn't really have much choice to go with Lucy Shell, but and Delahaye. But he 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 was very doubtful that they'd ever be able to bring him a car that would be worthy. We're talking to Neil Bascom, the author of the book called Faster. It just came out last month. It's one of the best sports books I've ever read, and it's just a great, great book. It's I run Sports 95.9, Um, And then you get – the book gets to, to the, the fact that in the 36 Olympics, we all know about Adolf Hitler, Jesse Owens, when they had the Olympics. And then also – but the Germans went and sent to – there was you talked about this time in the Vanderbilt Cup in 37 where they actually sent all their drivers over to America in Long Island and dominated that and said, look how great we are. We're Nazi Germany and we're amazing. And that, that became – uh, just the, their whole idea. And that's what propelled, again, Delahaye, Dreyfus, and Schnell. And, 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 and in terms of like, how can we compete against this? It seemed like unbeatable team of people. And, uh, and, and in terms of working and, and getting to that and working with Delahaye, I mean, it's just your effort in the book about saying how they just went again and again and again trying to get their car going faster was just amazing. And it turned into not just being like, make a fast car, but this was, this was bigger than car racing. This was like, you know, our own war because they uh, against Germany. Yeah, I mean it was it was a, a symbolic effort. I mean, you know, Delahaye and Rene and Lucy beating the Germans on the on the race car track. I mean, that that's not going to change the course of the war. But Lucy was convinced that, you know, it, there needed to be heroes. There needed to be symbols. There needed to be people fighting against uh, the Third Reich. And her field of, of expertise or, or love was, was motorsport. And so she decided to put herself forward in, in that field. And, you know, taking on the Germans, no French car, no French driver had beaten the Germans in over four years. Um, and it was just this, you know, leap of faith to try to do it. And it was right in 1938 where right before World War II broke out, that they tried to make their great effort. And, and you know, I, I don't think I'd have written faster if, if they would have been beaten by the Germans, but the event at the Grand Prix, opening of the Grand Prix 38 season was, was one of the great races ever. And I'm not, we're not going to say what happened. <laughs> because I just <laughs> think, it, it I'm away. not giving the whole book away because it was such a great, <laughs> and then just how do you describe it? And it was like, and because you had built up Rudy and you built up Renee, I mean, you're just thinking these are real people and you built in terms of the competition between the two. And, and Rudy was, you know, you had the little side story where he stole his best friend's girlfriend and then married her and all these other little side stories to this entire thing. And, and then, uh, but I did want to add about, I thought it was really interesting that in Renee in his later life, 
ended up becoming in Renee was in America and uh, and it was stuck during America during the war and then opened up a restaurant in Long Island for 25 years that was like a, in Queens I'm sorry Queens Forest Hills and was a very popular restaurant so he, he he was a race car driver and then he had a restaurant for 25 years in 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 Queens yeah and to add to that I think between you know between the being a restaurateur and a, and a Grand Prix race driver you also um eventually became an American citizen uh, during the early parts of the war, volunteered for the Army, and was involved in the, the landing of Allied forces in Italy. Um, saw action. And just, you know, I mean, he had three lives, you know, race car driver, uh, soldier, and then restaurateur. I mean, he's just an absolutely incredible man. Right, and I think that... And then you could, I did think it was cool how you talked about how there are only four Delahays left. And we think about the names of the Ferraris and Maseratis. And here the Delahay is known for one of these great race races. And there was only four made. And you, you talked about how there's one guy that owns three of them and another guy that owns one. But there's not sure which one ran in that race. And uh, it was just interesting how you went and tracked all these cars. And, and the fact that Delahay brand did not uh, – we don't hear about the Delahay brand because it, was, it went out of business and wasn't carried on. Yeah, eventually, um, you know, after the war in the 50s, kind of got taken over and, and, and the brand disappeared. Uh, but Delahaye cars, you know, they are, you know, there's, there's a cult of people who just absolutely love them. They're absolutely beautiful cars. And of the four Grand Prix cars, they're all in America. And I actually, you know, for quote-unquote research, I got to drive in one of them. And it just was this, you know, exhilarating, terrifying experience of this, you know, driving only at 70 miles an hour in this open-topped car with these tiny little wheels, but you feel every bump uh, and every sort of uh, cycle of the engine. Yeah, I think it was interesting. You talked about how Rene went back to Europe when he was older. I think it was, they said in his 70s and took uh, a car and just drove all the courses that he had run, all the old Grand Prix courses, uh, to just to go around them and just get, it was like you know, a big celebration about him going back to, to Europe and running those races again. Yeah, it was, it was one last victory lap, and, and he was followed by a reporter and, and when he was doing that. and Just the stories that he had to tell of that particular period of time, this golden age of racing. Um, and hopefully that's what, what readers find, this just sort of fascinating period of, of, of time. So we've been talking to Neil Bascom, author of Faster, uh, and your book is available through Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can just go online and 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 eBooks and everything. So uh, just a tremendous book. And uh, Neil, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. And and oh wait, tell me, I was going to bring bring this up. Is there a this should be a movie? Like when we talk about Ford versus Ferrari, is this going to become faster? Is are we going to see this in the movie theaters when we can finally go back to movies in maybe a year or two? I hope so. Uh, Imperative Entertainment is, is developing it. The screenwriters are, are writing it, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I, I think it'd make a, a very good movie. Oh, it would be a great movie. I mean, Ford vs. Ferrari is nothing, and I love that movie, but it was nothing compared to this. <laughs> and it was great. And the fact that you have this heroine like Lucy and then Renee, and, and I just, just, a, just a great uh, thing. I just, I'm so glad that you brought this to our attention. I encourage everyone to read this book. I don't care if, if you don't even like sports, which you, I don't know why we listen to the show, but you would like this. But if you love cars and like the issues about cars, it's a great book for that. Uh, thank you so much, Neil, for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you. I really appreciate your enthusiasm for the book. Thanks a lot. That was Neil Bascom, author of Faster, here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, what's, uh, we're almost out of time. What's your plans for this week? I know we've got a great show on tap next week. 
Yeah, we have a very good show next week. We're going to have Mr. Met on, Jay Horwitz, <laughs> who is the 40 years of PR of the Mets. So we have Fort St. Lucie, the Mets. We have a lot of New York fans down here. I think it'd be great to hear his stories. I read the book, and he's going to tell a lot of great stories about the Mets and about the Mets here in Port St. Lucie and all those things. I mean, he's been there for 40 years doing that, so I'm excited to have him on the show. It's going to be great. I want to hear where the idea for the neon players outside of Shea Stadium came from. That's my my biggest concern. Well, and the funny thing, so in the book he talked about, they were doing a photo shoot, and Daryl Strawberry and Keith Hernandez, in the team photo shoot, got into a fight. Now, you know, <laughs> you can't you do not talk about team chemistry when you're getting in fights during a photo shoot that's uh, like something out of major league yeah. you know what i mean uh we are out of time i want to thank so much uh, randy moeller for popping by also neil bascom on behalf of ira i'm mike let's talk next monday night ira on sports